Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 5, 1 through 10. So now let's uh, listen to God's word. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I love Austin. I know I'm not the only one that is here because you loved Austin. I moved to Austin not because of a job or anything I like. I moved here because a group of friends all loved Austin. We just planned on being here. And I, I love Austin so much that I, I feel like there's a list of things that if people consider themselves Austinites that they just have to do. Like, if you've been here long enough and you haven't experienced some of these things, it just grieves my heart. When someone hasn't had Roberto's Fuerte Queso at Taco Deli, it just it breaks my heart. You need to know the goodness of that. It breaks my heart when someone hasn't played barefoot at Pitch and Putt, Butler Pitch and Putt Golf Course in the middle of uh, downtown. Like, you have to experience that. Or you, you just must watch a sunrise from Mount Bunnell and a sunset underneath the South Congress Bridge as bats are flying over you. Am I alone in that? Like, I just feel like that's like a rite of passage. You have to experience that. An Austinite really has to enjoy the beauty of a brisket from Franklin and sushi at Uchi. Can I hear an amen? Oh, come on, people. A true Austinite, you, you have to at least once... Go to Jenny's Little Longhorn where a bunch of people drinking Lone Star are just watching intently for a chicken to poop on their right bingo quarter, right? Have you experienced that? I'm, we're going to take a field trip then. We're going to go experience that. Because if, if you're like really from Austin, you really have to experience that. Someone from, from Austin really has to two-step either at the white horse or the broken spoke. You just have to experience that. You have to do a cannonball in the freezing cold water at Barton Springs. You, it, it, right? Am I alone in this? I mean, if you're really from Austin, you have to watch an overrated UT football team fall apart in the fourth quarter. You just have to do that. Amen. Everyone in Austin has to experience the joy of being in a Willie Nelson concert and start pointing up the sky and you not know why. You just have to do that. Everyone in Austin, I feel really firm about this, everyone in Austin really must go to community first where they can see how, how a city is caring for the chronically homeless. You just, this is a part of being in Austin. And so for me, these are just a couple of markers of what it's like when you've accepted your identity as an Austinite. You've, you've experienced all of these uh, markers in your life. Now, we're beginning these, this series on the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are eight uh, statements of unforeseen blessing. They're unforeseen blessing that Jesus gives us in His most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason why I, I was hoping for our church to study these few verses is, for me, I really believe that these are the essential markers 
for us in our life with Jesus. For us to be followers of Jesus, we need to not only know these eight beatitudes, these eight blessings, but we also need to grow in our ability to live in them, to follow Jesus' example in that. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not alone in this belief. In, in, in 393, St. Augustine said about the section of Scripture, anyone who piously and earnestly ponders the Sermon on the Mount, which the Beatitudes begin, I believe he will find therein the perfect standard of the Christian life. The perfect standard of the Christian life is embedded in this, in this sermon, this section, this text. And also in a reported conversation between uh, Mahatmas Gandhi and the former uh, British Viceroy of India, Lord Irwin, they had conflict, and Gandhi was asked what he thought would solve the problems between Great Britain and India. And Gandhi, he picked up a Bible, and he turned to the fifth chapter of Matthew, and he said, he said, when your country and mine shall get together on the teachings laid down by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, we shall have solved the problems, not only of our countries, but of the whole world. The whole, every problem of the whole world is, has its solution here in the Sermon of the Mount. And elsewhere, Gandhi implored Christians, become worthy of the message that is embedded in the Sermon of the Mount. Even people who, who uh, are familiar with our text would say, man, this is where the Christians could stand out and really uh, to know and to follow Jesus and display Christ in this world is here within this text. And the reason I wanted our church to study the Beatitudes in many ways is the very heart of the Gospels are, are contained in these few verses. So let's back out for a second. What are, what are the Beatitudes? What are the Beatitudes in general? Uh, the beati- a word Beatitude means a blessing, which uh, both then and now usually has two different meanings. A blessing usually has two different meanings. One is like a fortunate experience. It's something that's just fortunate that happens to you. And the other definition is that is of God's unique presence and favor. When you've experienced God, God's unique presence and favor, there in that very existence is blessing. So we still find those two definitions today. If someone says, I'm blessed, uh, I'm too uh, blessed to be stressed, as I heard recently. Ugh, uh, when I heard that. Um, what is that usually used to describe? Usually it's used to describe a great parking spot, a beautiful Instagram picture of a family on an awesome vacation, or some sort of material wealth. Ah, oh, blessed, blessed. Uh, but there's, uh, as we find in these Beatitudes, <laughs> those, that really is not described in the framework of what Jesus is calling blessed here. It's a very different exi- existence. It's what Jesus is describing here in these Beatitudes as blessing is a state of deep contentment, spiritual contentment that is brought by existing and and experiencing God's unique presence in their life. And in doing that, they are experiencing a blessing, knowing that God is uniquely here. To help describe a blessed life, I I wanted to to bring up a a word that many of us might not have heard of. It's the word cairn. And this word cairn is a Scottish word, and you probably have seen this. It says stacked rocks on a hike where it kind of, you see a stacked rocks and you, on a hike and you know, oh, there's a path here. This is, this is a cairn. This is a path here. This is a reminder that someone's gone before you you've, and that there's a, there's a journey that awaits you if you're willing to walk there. And if you're willing to go there, it's, 
It's going, there's going to be a payoff. There's going to be something that's going to, that you're, uh, this journey is going to lead to. And you just need to know that other people have gone before you. You won't be alone in this. This is this, this marker. The eight Beatitudes for me in this past week as I was just praying and just thinking about this, the eight Beatitudes are Jesus' cairns saying that this is the path to the blessed life that you were created to live. Follow them. Walk. Walk this way. It leads somewhere that you will want to go. But as we will discover in each of these Beatitudes, they each require such faith and courage. Why? Each of these Beatitudes are going to lead us to a blessed life that's actually the contrary to the first definition of blessing. Comfort. Materialism. It's actually, these blessed roads is going to actually lead us to the upside kingdom that's going to define blessing in such a different, very different way. That judges blessing in different standards that Jesus in the world's standards of blessing seem to conflict and just speak different languages. But if you follow Jesus' cairns, His way, you'll have a full life, a blessed life. So today we're going to consider the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit. This is a surprising statement. We would think, blessed are those who are full in spirit, who have much of spirit to give this world and give God. Those who are wealthy in spirit. But in fact, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Really? Poverty is a blessing? Poor in spirit actually speaks to a sense of humility. This is what, is, what does poor in spirit really mean? It actually it speaks to a sense of humility. The opposite of being poor in spirit is, has meaning, is someone having pride. If someone having pride is the opposite of being poor in spirit. It's someone who has a bloated sense of ego and an entitlement. But poor in spirit, the one who is poor in spirit, knows their need, knows their dependence upon God, and they know that they have to rely on God for their very, their very spiritual uh, health. So if you were to look through Scripture, God has always seemed to be attracted to humility and repelled from pride. It seems to be very common that we see throughout Scripture that God rushes to humility and has, is repelled to pride. So let's just look at these two verses out of many I could have chosen. Proverbs 16, 18 through 19. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit along with the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. Isaiah 66, 2. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. What do we see in this passage is that God rushes to those who are humble and is repelled to those with pride. We see this in Jesus too. Who did Jesus seem attracted to? If you're used to uh, reading the gospel stories, who Jesus was attracted to, who did he notice? The humble, the needy, the vulnerable. The widow who gave her only two mites and she was completely bankrupt. That was the sound of worship to Jesus that day was when she gave those two copper coins. The, be- the beggar screaming for mercy. The woman who had bled for 10 years and had tried everything without helping her. And she- we-, we see in Jesus that Jesus rushes to these people. 
with grace and mercy of restoration. On contrary, who did Jesus share his most critical words for? The haughty, the morally superior, the judgmental, the elite. Those are the ones who, who Jesus brings his harshest words of warning. And this being who we know of Jesus on this day, he comes up to this mountain and declares among the crowds and his disciples here, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or as Eugene Peterson translated in, in the message version, which is usually for the win, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. We know it does not feel like a blessing when you're at the end of your rope. But here Jesus is saying, my kingdom is yours. Those of you who are at the end of your rope. Jesus lifts up the call to take on the attitude of spiritual poverty because he knows this is going to be hard for us. Our natural posture with God is not to come with poverty, but to come with fullness, to bring to God our status, our accomplishments, our morality, our scorecard of how good we've done. Maybe you're even feeling that today as you come in. But Jesus knows that our spiritual accomplishments and our status and our baggage usually hold us back from fully embracing grace, the good news of his gospel. A great example of this is in uh, Matthew 19. It shares this conflict very, very clearly. Matthew 19, there's a story of this wealthy young man who came to Jesus. In front of this crowd, he came to Jesus and he asked, what must I do to acquire uh, salvation, to acquire eternal life? And notice his question was to inherit, to acquire. He wanted to receive it almost like a commodity. What do I need to do to get this from you? And Jesus told him, if that's what you want, obey all God's commandments. To that, this, this young man said, I've obeyed all of them from a young age. So not only does he have like material wealth, but he also has moral wealth and superiority. Then Jesus looked at this man in front of this crowd of misfits and needy people with their own baggage and said, this is the example of who you should be like. Look at him. He's pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. He has much. He's moral. He's righteous. No, that's not what Jesus said. Instead, Jesus looking at this man, the Scripture says that he loved him. Then he said the words that would absolutely wreck him. He said this, if you want to follow me, give it all away. And at that, this man, his shoulders probably slunk as these words went all the way into his heart and his soul, and he knew he couldn't give it away. And he walked off sad. I think him giving away is more than just his possessions. I think it was also his status, the role that he acquired in that community. Jesus said, if you really want to follow me, you're going to have to become poor. This man, he wasn't willing to do that. You see, what was keeping this man from following Jesus fully and experiencing Jesus fully was not his sin, was not his failures, it was his damnable goodness. And at that, he couldn't, he couldn't separate himself from that. This is what Jesus said in response to that. This is in Matthew 19, starting in verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, right after this experience, 
Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Cam- uh, camels were like the, the largest animal in their like, society, and the eye of the needle, trying to thread that, has frustrated men and women for generations, right? <laughs> so how, it's easier for the largest thing to go through the smallest thing than for someone who has wealth to enter into the kingdom. When the disciples heard this in verse 25, the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Great question. This is a key. The rich young ruler in the world standard should have been first in line to be saved, right? But instead he was sent away. And if that guy can't do it, then who can be saved? These disciples were saying. Then Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Jesus is teaching the disciples and us that salvation will not, cannot be earned or acquired or purchased. You can't get your salvation, and it's not, uh, it's not given from a perfect moral scorecard It can only be received by the inconceivable nature of God's grace. Salvation is, in fact, impossible left to men and women, left to your own devices. It is impossible, but it's not impossible for God. And it's not impossible for God because God wants to give salvation, freedom, deliverance for those people who are at the end of their rope, those people who know their spiritual poverty, those who seem to be last and least, those who know that they need a Savior. Jesus says, I am their Savior. And this is so hard for us to receive. Our culture tends to celebrate the self-reliant, those who have carved out success for themselves, the independent those who've made them their way through bootstrapping themselves through life, who kick down doors and beat out the competition, this is who we celebrate. And we oftentimes don't check that mentality at the door in our spiritual life. And if we are honest, if we're honest, we would say that blessed are the whole, the strong, the resilient. But in fact, this beatitude is teaching us there's a different way. Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City, Uh, He called it what we would praise. He called it being middle class in spirit. Middle class in spirit is people who've learned to be kind, noble, and moral, not dependent upon anyone, people who can make a contribution, who don't pull out too much from other people. And we think that our salvation is then found in accumulation, when in fact our salvation is mostly discovered in a long series of losses. Losses of pride, losses of worth, loss of comparison, and in our losses we find salvation. Now one important point of clarification, something that I struggled with for a long time. The notion of being poor in spirit does not mean, I don't want it to be misunderstood, to be, have self-hatred or self-loathing, to, to think of yourself as worthless, as trash, uh, as despicable, that's not, that's not being poor in spirit, and that's not the blessed life that Jesus has for you. This beatitude actually points to the good news of the gospel. Here's, here's the good news of the gospel. You are not worthless, but you are unworthy. 
You are unworthy of the gift that Christ wants to give you, but that does not make you worthless. You are unworthy of the love and the grace and the mercy that God rushes to give to you. Why? There's no amount of morality or goodness that you could give God to purchase your salvation because of Christ who is rich in love and mercy, though you have great worth. You have the greatest possible worth ever imaginable. Why? This infinite, completely good God loves you and has given you, uh, those of you who are poor in spirit, He has given you Christ. And Christ has done this so that you would know a worth beyond yourself. One that is found when you're poor in spirit. One that's found when you come empty-handed to Christ. And those who have learned to come to Jesus with empty hands, you have realized it's then you have the capacity to really embrace the grace of God in your life. Or in other words, those who come to God empty-handed, theirs is the kingdom. You get to embrace and experience the kingdom of Christ. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And the question I've been thinking through this past week is, all right, so as I see Christ meeting people who are poor in spirit, I want to become more and more the person that Christ rushes to. So how do I become more poor in spirit? This is the question I've been thinking through in my own life. How do we become, as a community, more people who are desperate for Christ? I believe the first step is for us to be prepared to meet with the unexpected king. For us to be willing to be poor in spirit, we must first experience Jesus who showed us this very way, this unexpected king, who showed us the way of poverty and experiencing glorification in the midst of that poverty. An old rabbi was once asked why so few people are finding God today. And he wisely responded that people aren't willing to look that low. The one who calls the blessing of the poverty, the blessing of, 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 the, of a, a life poor in spirit, also chose the way of poverty. He was born in a stable. He was not found in a palace. He actually had no place to lay his head, as he described. He traveled like a vagrant. He traveled like a hobo. Even in his last days, he rode into town on a borrowed donkey. He had his last meal in a borrowed room. He was buried in a borrowed grave. And the last picture that his disciples had of King Jesus was upon his throne fixated on a cross. He was stripped naked, even his last possessions. Men were, were, were taking from him, and he was left alone and naked. And because of this, we see that Jesus chose the way of poverty. But because of his poverty, God lifted him up. And the humble was then exalted. The name at Jesus, at his name, every knee in heaven and earth and under earth will bow all because of this unexpected king. He showed us the way to the kingdom. And once we find the king who gave all to save us, we are then compelled to open up ourselves to the transforming power of Christ. The second step after we have experienced this unexpected king is to acknowledge where pride might be in our life, where pride might exist in our own life. The, great, the greatest foe to spiritual poverty is pride, as we said earlier. So we must ask, where is there pride in my life today? Do I struggle with the pride in comparison, comparison my, uh, compare, uh, comparing myself to other people? 
Do I struggle with pride when things go bad? Do I find solace in my achievements and my status and my wealth? Do I secretly pride myself on being a self-made man or woman? Or have we found the sweetness of being a pauper in Christ's kingdom? I think so much of growing more poor in spirit, more humble, is becoming more aware of the hollow wealth we are clinging to. Jesus once told this story about spiritual pride and self-righteousness. He told this story in Luke 18, verses 10 through 14. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. He was spiritually well off, and the very opposite of the end of the spectrum was this tax collector. Though he might be economically wealthy, he was spiritually bankrupt. The tax collector, in verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this is Jesus saying, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This parable might ask you and I today, which do we most identify with? Are we more like this moral leader whose life is pretty put together or more like this tax collector who comes before humbly comes before God and says God I still need your mercy God I still need your grace I still need your forgiveness I'm not beyond it today if you want to be justified or exalted before God the journey for us is the journey of humility of becoming more poor in spirit After we have met the king and after we've been made aware of the presence of pride in our life, the third and final step is to give it away. To give away our pride, to give away our control, to give away our protection, our status, and our moral status. Another way way to say this is to become poor. I have loved discovering this phrase this past week about this idea of letting go. It's called the sacrament of letting go. I love it. Someone called it a sacrament. Once we have detached from the kingdom of this world, the kingdom where you get what you deserve, where there's no free handouts, then we show up and before God, empty-handed, vulnerable, and unimpressive, and then we're able to give ourselves fully to God. We're able to release the things of this world and stand before God in need of a Savior. And when we become before God unimpressive, we come before God as our true self, we realize that we are fully loved right then. We're loved not based on our possessions or our merits or our achievements. You are loved because God has chosen to love you. And it's as simple as that. You have been loved because God has chosen to love you. And this love, if you let it, it will slowly permeate through your soul and your heart and then all of a sudden, you start feeling free from the things this world have said that we should bind our life to. We become people that we can experience the sacrament of letting go, of releasing the things that really don't matter, the things that are actually holding us back from embracing the kingdom more. This is perfectly des- described in Jesus' shortest parable, Matthew thirteen forty four. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It's hidden in a field. When a man found it, 
he hid it again, and then in his joy sold all that he had. He gave away everything and bought that field. When you realize the treasure of the gospel, you realize that you are loved in Jesus. You are then willing to release everything that doesn't matter so that you can acquire, you can have, you can, you can receive the only thing that really does matter that actually is given to you in your poverty, the only thing of true value, which is the gospel, that you are loved in Christ. And as you cling to that singular treasure, then you and I will learn what it means to be blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.